You know, on balance, I say yes. I take my, <laughs> I take my cue from the uh, stand-up comic world and the improv world, where you know, if somebody proposes something, you say yes. You don't say, "Let me think about that." Let me think about that. You know, it probably gets me into trouble betimes because there are things to which <laughs> there are things to which one pro probably shouldn't be saying yes. But as I always say uh, to my family, most of the trouble I'm in is of my own making, and most of it is very happy trouble compared to the genuine, the genuine difficulties that people around the world are experiencing. So it's a pleasure to be with you today. Hey, poets and poetry lovers. Welcome to Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast sponsored by the Radio Drama Network. I am unbelievably honored to introduce the guest of today's episode, the Pulitzer Prize winning Paul Muldoon. Paul Muldoon is an Irish poet and professor of poetry, as well as an editor, critic, playwright, lyricist, and translator. He is the author of 14 full-length collections of poetry, including Howdy Skelp, Frolic and Detour, and 1,000 Things Worth Knowing. He has also published innumerable smaller collections, works of criticism, opera libretti, books for children, song lyrics, and radio and television drama. His poetry has been translated into 20 languages. Muldoon served as a professor of poetry at Oxford University and as poetry editor of The New Yorker. He has taught at Princeton University since 1987 and currently occupies the Howard G.B. Clark 21 chair in the humanities. Paul Muldoon is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Among his awards are the Eric Gregory Award, the Sir Jeffrey Faber Memorial Award, and the T.S. Eliot Prize. He is the recipient of honorary doctorates from 10 universities. Paul Muldoon has been described by the Times Literary Supplement as the most significant English language poet born since the Second World War. Roger Rosenblatt, writing in the New York Times Book Review, described Paul Muldoon as one of the great poets of the past hundred years, who can be everything in his poems. Word playful, lyrical, hilarious, melancholy, and angry. Only Yeats before him could write with such a measured fury. Today, Paul and I talked about The New Yorker, uh, poetry reading voice, and small revelations. I sincerely hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I do. First question I asked Paul was, "What's your poetry origin story?" Take a listen. Well, that that's a small question, perhaps a short question, but the answer could be quite long. How long have you got? First of all, I'm from Ireland, and while I, you know, wouldn't go so far as to say that poetry is intrinsic to the Irish experience, I think that would be a daft thing to say. Any, any more than one would say that particular nations have tendencies in one direction or another. But I think it is true to say that even now, Ireland is a country where poetry is honoured, where poets may actually announce themselves to be poets without kind of furtive look or a furtive feeling. You know, usually when people announce that they're poets, one wants to run in the opposite direction. But in Ireland, actually, they seem not to do that. So I was brought up, of course, in 
Northern Ireland, where I think there, there's even more consideration on a day-to-day -day basis of who one is and what one's sense of one's place of origin might be. And those are also big questions for poets. And so there are various elements coming together. I mean, there was the, the Irish tradition in poetry, both in English and, of course, in Gaelic, to, to which, I, which I belonged, do still belong. So I was brought up learning poetry in Irish, for example. And then, of course, I was exposed to poetry in English from many traditions, the UK tradition, the Irish tradition, and needless to say, the US tradition. So there were many things coming together. Next, Paul and I talked about the teachers that changed his life. Take a listen. The school I went to, some fabulous teachers, and I think if you scratch most writers, they'll tell you that somewhere along the way, there was a teacher who was not discouraging. Let's put it like that. Sometimes quite encouraging. And I fell into that category. And when I was about 14 or 15, I had a teacher who gave me a copy of the Faber Book of Modern Verse, which was an anthology that came out in 1965. It had been edited, re-edited by Donald Hall of recent memory. And it was an anthology of poetry in English from uh, the US, UK. It's very up to date. So I basically learned poetry, 20th century poetry, in a very intensive way. And in the way that other kids were interested in football or interested in stamp collecting, I was interested in poetry. And I knew more about poetry when I was 15 than I do now, in the way that 15-year-olds know more about anything than the rest of us. I think I actually did know more about poetry thought more about poetry, and maybe even thought that I was, had a chance of being a poet much more at 15 than I do now. Next, I was curious to know, who were the poets that changed Paul's life and were their poems? And it turns out that Paul loves a freaky little guy from the 16th century that at least I love very much. Can you guess who it is? <laughs> Take a listen. For a really great poem, I'm sure there are a few that might wave to us in this era, but the person I, who waves to me most is a poet from a somewhat distant era in many regards, and that's John Donne, who flourished, as you know, around about 1600. I encourage my students, if one is going to learn anywhere from anyone, you know, don't necessarily try to learn from somebody who's okay who published a poem last week. If you want to be okay, fine, that's your choice. If you want to be great, you have to, you have to step in with the, in, into the playground where, where the, big, the big boys, girls, and others are playing, right? That's, if you want to do it, learn from the people who are actually good at it. So my own favorite poem, the great in that regard, is the flea by John Donne. Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou denyest me is. 
It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea are two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest that this cannot be said a sin, nor shame, nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered swells with one blood made of two. And this, alas, is more than we would do. Oh, stay, three lives and one flea spare, where we almost, nay, more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, and you, we're met and cloistered in these living walls of jet. Though use make you apt to kill me, let's not to that self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence, Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphest, and sayest that thou find'st not thyself nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honour when thou yield'st to me will waste, as this flea's death took life from thee. So to be able to write a poem like that uh, would, be, would be something else. And, and, it's, and it's to that that I aspire. I first heard about Paul as the poetry editor of The New Yorker from 2007 to 2017. I love The New Yorker and have six posters of New Yorker covers on my bedroom wall. And yes, that is completely true. It is one of the only magazines I'm subscribed to, mostly due to its incredible poetry section. And so I want to know what being the poetry editor of one of the most famous magazines in the world was like. Take a listen. I always had a couple of John Ashbery poems in the hopper at any given moment. But I was also thrilled to, uh, to be able to publish poems that, were, that really came across the transom. So I spent 10 years doing that. When I went in, I made it, you know, I, I said to myself and perhaps a few others, that if I did it for 10 years, that would be as much as would do if I lasted for 10 years. And so I did it for 10 years and Pretty much to the day the 10 years were up, I quit. It's quite a tough job because one spends most of one's time spend, uh, saying no to people, right? One, one says yes 50 times a year or something like that. One, one says no thousands of times. The New Yorker is obviously notorious for having an incredible poetry section and it's clear that your curation was and is unmatched. This might be a little bit of a convoluted question, but I just need to know, what makes good poem, in your opinion, or a good poet, whatever that means? And how could you tell when you read something that you wanted to publish it? Um, I am very skeptical about the extent to which we learn. And I say that with the, you know, with the fu fully conscious of the notion that I am a teacher of poetry, you know? And there are certainly things we may learn in poetry as we may, we may learn in oil painting, 
piano playing, uh, public speaking, <laughs> right? It's not that there aren't things we can't learn, but to be a brilliant public speaker takes a little extra element. To be a great pianist takes a little extra element. And to be a great oil painter takes another element. And that element, I, I fear, and you know, one hesitates from bringing it up in this modern era, it takes a little bit of talent, uh, which is an idea that does not have the same kind of currency it used to. You know, I, can, I could practice piano from until the cows come home. I just, I'd never be any good at it. So there is an inexplicable aspect to what makes poems work, what makes poems by the same poet, some poems work and others not. Actually, very few, very few poems, even in many cases by, by our most esteemed poets, actually work. There are all kinds of elements coming together. One of them is luck. Now, that's not to say that we cannot bring certain components from one situation to the next. But basically, when one sits down to write a poem, one's starting from scratch, perhaps even behind scratch, because the more one has done it, actually the fewer things one might want to address. I mean, there's a sense, well, I can't write about that again. I've done that. I've done some version of that. And the more one keeps doing it, in a strange way, the more self, um, I, I, I think, self-aware one, one becomes. And that actually is a problem for the artist. So there, there, are many there are many difficulties attending the idea of one's continuing to do it. And that's a rather chastening thought for someone like myself. You know, who start, I'm now 71, so I started doing it when I was about 15. So math is not my strongest suit, but whatever that, whatever that is, you know, it's a long time to be trying to do it. We've chatted about poems you love and poems you've published, but I was wondering if now we could hear a poem of yours. I'd be delighted to read a poem. This a newish poem called By the Time You Read This, which is a line, I suppose, that we associate with uh, letters, missives, notes from people. Years ago, I wrote a poem called Why Brownlee Left, about a character, kind of, kind of character goes out to buy a packet of uh, cigarettes and never shows up again, never comes home, and a, a mysterious disappearance. So I've just recently written this poem that picks up on that subject, and I would be happy to read it for you. By the time you read this, by the time you read this, I'll be gone for a newspaper and quart of milk, never to return. A half mowed lawn, leading to me as a scroll of silk once led to the mulberry silkworm. By the time you read this, I'll be gone AWOL, in spite of the fact, in terms of domesticity, I've outshone even the heedful trumpeter swan that spends five weeks constructing a nest. By the time you read this, 
I'll be gone less because of some profound unrest than my fascination with the Cree and the sand hills of Saskatchewan, into which windswept immensity. By the time you read this, I'll be long gone. So to our audience, I cannot stress enough how influential Paul's work has been on specifically British and Irish poetry. To quote the Irish Post, to describe Paul Muldoon's influence on contemporary poetry is like trying to assess the influence of the Beatles on post-war music. It's to be seen and heard in the work of almost every British and Irish poet since the 1970s. Paul was the youngest member in a group of notable Northern Irish poets, including Seamus Haney. Michael Longley and Derek Mahan, who gained prominence in the 1960s and 70s, and he even studied with Haney as a student at Queen's University in Belfast. In Preoccupation Selected Prose, Haney deemed his work Muse as a strange, rich second collection and judged him as one of the very best poets. Paul continues a legacy of profound Irish writers and has undoubtedly joined the ranks of some of my favorites and some of the world's favorites, you know, Samuel Beckett, Jonathan Swift, William Butler Yeats, James Joyce, and it's clear that his work since the beginning has deeply impacted his Irish audience. And I wanted to know his thoughts on American audiences and Irish poetry, and he had a fascinating answer. So take a listen. Do you think that there's a disconnect between American audiences and Irish poetry? I don't think so, though I would not necessarily be the best person to, to ask that question. I mean, you might want to ask an American audience that. I mean, it's true that there are, well, let's think about this. Let's try to think it through. It's true that poems are very much of their place, and that includes their, the language in which they're written. Now, the language in which many of my poems are, are written uh, is Hiberno-English. And there are many usages there that even, I'm being 71, as I mentioned, you know, the language I used when I was a kid 60, 70 years ago is actually a slightly different language from that spoken now in Ireland. And the references to various forms of country practices, country life, for example, in which I was brought up, wouldn't even be recognizable to many people speaking, uh, speaking English in Ireland today. And there are allusions, funnily enough, I was writing about this the other day for a newspaper. When I was a teenager, I wrote a poem in which I referred to a hovercraft. Now, a hovercraft is, is a mode of transport which, uh, as I recall, floats on a current of air over the ocean. And it was a very modern invention. It was, there was one that ran between England and France, and it seemed like something that was there to stay. Whereas nowadays, nobody has any idea what a hovercraft means. So what I'm getting at is that even in recent memory, we have to we have to do a little bit, bit of back, background research to read a poem, right? We, the poem is of its place, it's of its time. And 
everything that comes with that, you know? So it's, so for example, with the Dunn poem, um, you know, to know that orthographically, when we come a, upon a line like, the notion of it sucking me first, you first, and then sucking me, right? To, re to recall that in 1600, the letters S and F were pretty much interchangeable, sheds a whole new light on how we read that poem, okay? So we have to go back there to figure out what exactly people were saying, be it 1600, be it 1960, or actually be it, be it last week, because the language is changing all the time, all the time. And uh, so it's, so, okay, so there's that. Having said that, one would like to think that there's something about a poem, if it's, that might transcend not only language, i.e., which would allow it to be translated into another language and still survive, right? But also its moment, right? Its historical moment. And so, you know, what's, what's interesting about that, I think, is that, um, I mean, for me, for example, the way Dunn deals with scientific invention in 1600 might give us some insights as to how to deal with uh, the progress that we see these days and, you know, our sense of the universe, for example, or the universes and how they function and how we might make metaphors find similes that are equal to them. But in any case, I wonder if what the Irish, the English, I'm less concerned with nationalities and with identities, frankly, and people saying, look at me, I'm separate. I'm different from you. I'm less interested in that than I am in the points at which people have common ground. That's, that's, where, uh, that's where the interest is for me. So you don't write with an intended audience in mind? For an intended audience. I, how do you mean? I think that Modern American poets write for an audience of modern American poets, of poets that understand uses in tone and breath and language that one would not have necessarily picked up on 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's probably true. And, uh, but I don't, you know, when I, when I, I'm not, I, I don't visualize someone as an ideal reader. And I'm certainly not writing for any particular group. And I, I don't know if I'm writing for modern American poets. Uh, they, they would not necessarily be my group. I mean, if they want to read it, fine. But I'm not setting out to, to write for them. Right? I'm setting out to, if anything, to write for you know someone walking down the street who might conceivably, conceivably be able to read one of these poems and read them, by the way, without preconceptions and without prejudice, right? And without expectation as to what, what I might be doing and what I might stand for. A couple weeks ago, Matt Yeager was on the podcast, and he talked about his college professor who made him memorize loads and loads of poetry. And 
Paul himself is a renowned professor. You know, he's taught at Oxford, Princeton, and as of 2022, was announced as the ninth Ireland professor of poetry, which is absolutely incredible. I want to know a little bit about his teaching style and if, like Matt's professor, he encourages his students to memorize poetry. Take a listen. In terms of memorization, I actually have a terrible memory. I'm useless at memorizing poems, including my own. So just had one or two bad experiences when I was a kid having to do with memorization. And since I can't, since I'm not good at it myself, I don't ask my students to do it. I wouldn't ask them to do anything I wouldn't or couldn't do myself. Um, so, but I do encourage them to read as much as possible. And in fact, um, in many ways, the classes I've taught over the years have it as much to do with reading poetry as writing poetry. As I say, the more one knows about the, the history of um, what, what others have done in poetry in English, the better. And yeah, I think it, uh, it's, it's just, it's just a, it's a good thing to know, just as if, if one is setting out to play um, guitar, that one has a sense of what uh, Paco Pena did or Pete Townsend or Richard Thompson, or whoever, whoever it might be, you know? It's no accident that people spend uh, days trying to learn Stairway to Heaven. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's no accident that people uh, spend days, years, perhaps, trying to uh, learn uh, the Beatles catalogue if they're interested in playing music. There's a reason for it, and it has to do with total immersion and, and the chance that whether or not it's absolutely to the fore of one's memory and experience, it's lurking about somewhere back in there. So I think in that sense, memorization is important, not necessarily standing up and reading by rote, when I was a kid, you know, one was asked to do that. And if one didn't succeed in reading it by rote, one was actually given a clip around the ear. You know, it was enforced by, uh, by violence. So the, the, the memory, the, the folk memory, as it were, of poetry been enforced by violence, which it was, is not a happy one. So it's a fraud issue. I was enamored by your reading of The Flea, and you have such a wonderful speaking voice. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, we here at PSNY and our partners at the Radio Drama Network wholeheartedly believe in the practice of reading poetry out loud, that the ear is potentially even more of a profound poetic tool than the eye. So do you, one, do you agree with this? And two, do you ever encourage your students to read poetry out loud? And then... Three, do you think that it's an important practice for a poet to read poetry out loud? I do think that's important, so long as they're reading the poem and letting the poem instruct them as to how it needs to be read, right? What, what happens far too often, and in my opinion, is that there is a poetry reading voice and, and method which is applied to all poems whether or not it's got anything whatsoever to do with what's there on the page, right? And uh, I just happen to have 
I, I've got a copy of my most recent book. And so this, this is just a little, uh, this is from the, the, the back copy or the front copy. Almost every page shows a dazzle and glamour that few other contemporary poets might reach. This is poetry at its most wide ranging and curious about the world, with cleverly fettered and formal strictures and structures. Now that's how many people read poetry, right? And I'm here to tell you that what I've just read is not a poem. I've just made it sound like a poem. So I, I've, I have very little patience with this style of reading poetry, frankly, that has no regard whatsoever for what's on the page. The poem needs to teach you how to read it. So I encourage people to read aloud, of course. And that's one of, one of the tests of many, not all, many poems, is how it, how it squares up to the ear as, as much as to the eye. But let's be clear about, about how we do that. And I'm frankly astonished by the number of poets I hear standing up to read, and they all sound the same. And they all sound like what I've just done. And it has got absolutely nothing to do with anything except an affectation. I can make the New York Times uh, editorial this morning sound like a poem for you if, if you wish. I don't have it in front of me, but I could, I could if you wished. And we all know that's not a poem, but, but we can make it sound like a poem. Which is not to say, of course, that there isn't a trance-like aspect to, some, to much of this. There is a slightly other aspect to it. And the poem, indeed, to some extent, will often have a, an otherworldly aspect, since it comes partly from a, a, a world that's slightly to one side of our own, yet refers absolutely to the world in which we live, right? Um, I mean, that's perhaps a little fanciful. The language of the poem, even though it's aspiring to kind of a Wordsworthian notion of the language spoken, the language of everyday speech, the, lang the language of, of common discourse, our everyday usage, you know, which has become the, the norm for poetry in the 20th century, for sure. And for the most part, not always, but for the most part. So, but, but even then, it's not quite how we speak. You know, it's not exactly, I'm not speaking right now, just as I might in a poem. It's somewhat different, right? Somewhat different. So I think we acknowledge that also. But in terms of reading style, I think it's a fabulous, it'll be a great topic for a dissertation to try to figure out sometime where exactly that style of reading developed. It may well go back to a single reader, and it could go back to somebody in the 1950s, could go back to Iowa. You never know where it might, might but I bet you there's a way of tracking where that particular style actually developed. So there's a, there's a job for some enterprising um, scholar. Paul and I talked about poetry communities and the responsibilities of being an educator. Take a listen. I'm wondering, 
how do you approach the responsibility of teaching the next generation about poetry and about poetry communities and about the importance of having a poetry community? Well, I actually uh, try to teach in a way that, first of all, where they, where they respect some of the ideas that we've just been discussing and where they honor um, ignorance, where they honor humility, where they are not unhappy with the concept of their not quite knowing what they're doing, which is very hard for the, the modern, particularly university student, who have got into university partly, if not mostly, because they know so much. So to remind them that in this particular business, while it's important to know as much as possible, it's even more important to be willing to know nothing. And after that, in a strange way, I mean, one's job as a teacher is actually, to, in a strange way, to get out of the frame, to get out of the picture, to, to make oneself unnecessary. And I often encourage them, actually, in, in the groups that they have made in a class, for example, to continue to discuss with those peers who, you know, whom, whom they recognize now are you know, decent readers, someone who will tell them the truth rather than just mindlessly say, oh, yeah, that's really great, that's really cool, you know, which is... Which is almost, which is a lovely thing for all of us to hear. We all love that. Who doesn't want to hear "I love your new poem"? But the fact is that the people who are going to be useful to you as a writer in your community of writers, as you call it, are the ones who are going to say to you, "You know what? There's a little problem with that poem. Here's a way of fixing it. Here's a suggestion." So those would be some of the um, some of the ideas with which I, I would hope to leave them. I guess piggybacking off of your last answer, do you have any advice for folks who want to get into the poetry business? Well, I think it's a good idea to know as much as possible in the poetry business, to know as much as possible. I mean, so that, for example, if one were moved to write a poem about a flea, it's probably on balance preferable to have a sense, to know that John Donne was in there first. There's not absolutely de rigueur. Not absolutely de rigueur, but it probably shouldn't come as a surprise to a writer that someone else has had a stab at this. I'm a huge believer in knowing the rules before you can break them, so I love that answer. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. You are seriously one of the most prolific poets of today, and it's an honor to talk to you. I I love your poetry because it reminds me a great deal of James Joyce, who I, I spent a lot of time with in college. You know, Molly Bloom and I are pretty intimate. So uh, I, I feel like it's difficult to write in a unique yet Joycean way, even though that sounded super pretentious. And this is not a very elegant question, but I just gotta know, how do you do it? Like, how do you write something like moist sand and gravel? How do you write poetry that is so erudite and bewildering and strange and layered and innovative and just wonderful? I do believe in my being completely at the service, to use a phrase you used, of something beyond me. And that is initially, most immediately, the poem. 
itself. So it's my job to allow the poem to find its way into the world through me and to be absolutely humble before what it might want to do. So I have no preconceptions or prejudices. I hope I probably have a few lurking around as to what the poem might want to do. I have no ambition for it. Indeed, I have very little time for people, for poets who say, well, this is my business in poetry. This is what I'm setting out to do. This is my agenda. I'm not in the business of any agenda whatsoever, except what happens from poem to poem, right? From one poem to the next, what it needs to do. So I never know what I'm doing. I never have any sense of what I'm doing. I'm completely in the dark. and. When I come out the other end of the poem, there has been, one hopes, some little revelation, some small revelation has been made. I think the sense that one does not know what one's doing does not come naturally to us, in, particularly in our culture. We want to know what we're doing and we want to know why we're doing it. And we better have an answer to both those questions. Those are societal pressures. So in the poetry business, I don't have answers to either of those questions. So there's an element of, um, to borrow a phrase from Yeats, of walking naked. And, you know, one has to be ready to walk naked in the poetry business. And frankly, not to care too much about what people think of you. To end off this episode, I mean... In this interview, you've said that you've basically loved poetry since you can remember, and you've been deeply ingrained in poetry communities for essentially your entire career. And being a full-time artist and academic must be rewarding, but it also sounds incredibly challenging. So my first part to this question is after all of your success, why do you keep doing it? And on top of that, you've found so much success with other mediums. So why do you keep coming back to poetry? Well, I do write songs. I try to write songs. In fact, that's as much as I ever say about any of these activities. I try to write poems. I don't, you know, I don't really see, even in the culture that I was describing earlier on, in which the idea of being a poet is somewhat accepted, to say any more than I try to do it, I think is a mistake. One tries. One tries one's best. And to go back to your component of your question there. Why does one keep doing it? I mean, I've said this many times. I'll say it again because it's the only answer I have. I, tr I keep on doing it for a couple of reasons. One of them is I hope one day, one of these days, to write a really great poem. A poem that's going to knock your socks off and you come out of it, the reader will, I will come out of it. Of course, my capacity for self a delusion as a writer is immense, but he, I might think it's great, but actually other people might think it's great too. So that's one reason, the chance that one might write a really good one, you know? Thank you. 
This has been an episode of Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to Paul Muldoon for having a Coke with me today. Thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Debs Baird, our phenomenal music composer, Yair Evneen, and the staff of PSNY for your incredible support. And most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. I wonder who I'll talk to next. Tune in every Friday to find out.